Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Welcome to High Heels in Politics. High Heels in Politics will be interviewing one of the most prominent and influential political figures in the Ohio Senate. As your host, Mary Ann Christie, you will hear Senator Bill Blessing discuss his strong record of public service serving in the Ohio Senate and House since 2010, representing the 8th District, which includes parts of Hamilton County. Bill was born and raised in Cincinnati. He attended LaSalle High School, graduated from the University of Cincinnati with a mathematic degree, and later he earned his electrical engineering degree from UC. He was a practicing engineer until he succeeded his father, Lou Blessing, in the House after his departure in 2010. When Senator Lou Terhart retired, Bill moved to the Senate. Today, he chairs the powerful Ways and Means Committee, Vice Chair Education Committee, and is a member of the Transportation and Finance Committee. Senate lawmakers today are working on cuts to income taxes, expand school choice, and putting forth an agenda to growing the economy and protecting families. Welcome, Bill, to High Heels and Politics. Let's begin by defining the Senate District 8 that you represent, and then follow this with the purpose and responsibilities of an Ohio State Senator and the committees that you chair or serve on. Well, thank you, Marianne. So the 8th Senate District, the best way to think about it is the western suburbs of Hamilton County, so Colerain, Green Township, uh, Delhi, west of there, a few wards of uh, city of Cincinnati below that, and then the northern and eastern suburbs. So think Springdale, Sharonville, Madeira, Montgomery, Blue Ash, Sycamore Township, and the like. As far as the purpose and responsibilities of a uh, state senator, committees that I chair and serve on, so I am the chairman of the Senate Ways and Means Committee, and I serve on the Senate Finance, Education, and Insurance Committees. Some of the responsibilities that we have are similar to the other chamber, the Ohio House of Representatives. One difference is, is that the governor will make appointments to various cabinet-level positions, and we confirm them much the same way that, or an analog to that, would be at the federal level, senators confirming judges to the federal bench. But as you can imagine, each piece of legislation that we introduce will typically be referred to the various committees that we sit on. Education-related legislation is sent to the Education Committee, insurance to insurance, appropriations bills to finance, and tax legislation to Ways and Means, which, again, I chair. And so what that would mean is that I control the agenda, what bills we want to hear, whether or not they're going to get a vote, so on and so forth. How often does the Senate meet? So we have a a pretty aggressive schedule. To give you a little bit of background, the General Assembly is two years in duration, starting in an odd-numbered year where we are now in 2023. So it's very early on. 
typically during the budget cycle, we're looking at going from February for the most part to the end of June. Our fiscal new year is seven, or excuse me, July 1st. So we will typically have session on Wednesdays, committees on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. After the budget is passed, there's a two, three-month break over summer and early fall, and then we come back through October through April, where we meet, pass various bills, also get the capital appropriations budget out. Usually by April and May, we're done for what would seem to be an extended summer break that coincides with uh, the campaign season, where half the senators are up every two years. That's because we have four-year terms. The end of that General Assembly, at the end of the even-numbered year in November and December, we have what is called lame duck, which is a sort of mad dash to get legislation that is still pending across the finish line and signed by the governor, because if it is not passed by the end of that two-year period, all of it resets and you have to start all over again. So if the bill had passed the Senate, let's say it, it had passed the House with amendments and we neither concurred nor sent it to conference committee, uh, so right at the end of the line before it was to be signed by the governor, it goes right back to the beginning. So you wouldn't want to have to go back and <laughs> do all that work again if you can avoid it. Bill, what are the top priority bills currently under consideration by the Senate and how do they address the most pressing issues facing Ohio today? It's still very early on in the uh, the General Assembly. We've you know only had a, a handful of, of sessions thus far. As far as Senate priorities, Senate Bill 1, which we'll talk about a little bit later, which is shifting around how the State Board of Education works, we recently passed that out. We recently started hearings on the transportation budget, House Bill 33, which does all the spending for our, our uh, roads and bridges and various projects throughout the state that are related to transportation, that starts in the House and is now over in the Senate. As a general rule, I think the, the Senate, uh, this General Assembly, at least from the standpoint of committees that I'm on, will be hearing a lot regarding scholarships, uh, school funding, taxes, and the like. That said, early on, a lot of members tried to get their legislation out early to get, give it the most amount of time to ultimately be passed. Some things I'm personally working on is uh, Senate Bill 76, which seeks to stop the large uh, institutional housing investors from buying up property, particularly in urban counties, robbing folks, particularly younger folks, of the opportunity for home ownership. Another bill that I have not yet introduced but plan on introducing here soon deals with the earned income tax credit, which in order to get that, you have to work. And it is a refundable credit, which means you get it back from the state. The idea is, is that it will help employers from the standpoint of if you've gone to restaurants, you might see help wanted signs. A lot of small businesses have trouble with workforce because our labor force participation rate is still below what it was during the pandemic. So this is just enough of a bump to help those small employers bring in these, some, some of these lower income folks who might not have worked at those places of employment. Let's just go back to uh, that one bill that you're presently working on in regard to out-of-staters purchasing properties, because it really is a major problem for 
the young people for buying their starter homes, and even for the elderly who want to sell the big houses and move into small ones, because these out-of-staters come in and they buy it up with cash. You want to just talk a little bit more about that and why it's a problem? People will say that it's really, from a statewide standpoint, not that much of an issue. But I can tell you where I live in Colerain, Price Hill, for example, there are neighborhoods where these where these folks own 50% of the homes in a given neighborhood. And they buy with cash because, frankly, who they're being financed by are hedge funds, pension funds in some in some aspects, where they have billions and billions of dollars searching for this yield. So they have no problem. They don't need to get lending. They don't need realtors. They don't need any of this. And they can just walk in there with cash and bid the properties up. So not only are they snapping up the properties from younger would-be homeowners, as well as older folks who want to sell, they try to get them without an appraisal. So if you own the home for a significant period of time, you may not know what that house is really worth without an appraisal. But that cash offer might seem pretty good right out of the gate, avoiding you the hassle of having to go through that process. But the more insidious aspect of this is that not only are you robbing the opportunity for these younger people to get their homes, it drives up the price of homes in the area. And once they do buy them, it is their business model to never sell them. They permanently rent them out. It's part of their portfolio. And if you, like me, believe that homeownership is part of the the American dream, it is a problem that we absolutely need to go after. Yeah. And they generally don't maintain the property the way a homeowner would maintain it. So it is a major problem. I think a lot of young people, our listeners, are happy to hear that there's some consideration for legislation to help prevent this from continuing. And you mentioned the fact that they pay generally a higher price. And this is going to drive the property valuation for other people living in those neighborhoods. I was a former real estate appraiser, and I know that's how you determine the valuation of property is by what something has sold for in the prior years. So it is a problem for everyone, whether you're a homeowner or a young person starting or an elderly person. And that is a a very salient point to bring up. When those property values rise because they're buying up everything in sight, as you know, once there's more demand, prices go up. But for those that happen to be living there, if they're seniors on a fixed income, over time, they will see their property values rise, of course, and they may not be able to uh, afford the increasing tax burden that is on them. Couple that with the inflation that we're seeing today is a very nasty combination. All right. We have another interesting question that the House is considering. They want to flatten the Ohio income tax rate and maintain the exemption status. Explain the contents of this bill. This is House Bill 1, and what it does is it seeks to flatten the tax to 2.75%, but you have to remember on the first $26,000 or so of taxable income, you don't pay any state income tax on it. To get to that point where our highest bracket rate for the personal income tax is 3.99% right now, to get to that, 
it costs the state, because again, when you do a tax cut, that's less revenue that comes into the state. It's just shy of about $2 billion. And the way that this is paid for in the bill, the sponsors would tell you that, or I should say sponsor rather, would tell you that it's trying to make it revenue neutral by getting rid of the property tax rollback and reducing the assessed rate. So from the standpoint of a taxpayer, in a vacuum, they would be paying less property tax and they would be getting a tax cut. However, even if it's revenue neutral, that money needs to be made up somewhere. And that property tax rollback was very beneficial to school districts uh, as well as other local government entities. And that assessed rate also eats into their ability to, you know, or what they can raise from local levies. So I'm not sure what the net effect of this legislation is going to be in the long run for a particular taxpayer. You might get an income tax cut, but in the long run, you might see your property taxes increase locally. I would say this, that if the stated goal is to reduce income tax rates, one thing that needs to be kept in mind, in Ohio at least, is we receive about $11 billion per fiscal year in income tax revenue. However, in Ohio, we have a little over $11 billion, well, at least by the time this budget is is signed for FY25 projections, it would be eventually $11.4 billion in tax expenditures. So what is a tax expenditure? It's a carve-out of sorts. Some carve-outs might make some sense. You know, in years past, we had a sales tax exemption on feminine hygiene products, but others do seem like corporate giveaways and so on and so forth that if you were to get rid of those, you might be able to more fully fund an income tax cut and flattening of the tax, excuse me, flattening the tax without messing with a lot of the uh, local property issues that this bill has brought to the fore. The universal school choice. Now, this is the leading bill that would give parents expanded options regarding their children's education. You're a member of the Education Committee. I earlier said you were chair, but a vice chair, but you, you moved away from that. And <laughs> let's discuss the backpack bill and its potential impact on Ohio schools and students. So the bill that we're discussing, Senate's, Senate side, is Senate Bill 11, which makes the Ed Choice Scholarship universal. So in order to get that scholarship, which is a voucher of about $5,500 for K through 8, $7,500 for high school that you can use for, since we're talking Cincinnati, chartered non-public schools. And the best way to think of that is around here, your Catholic grade schools and high schools. The, currently, that program has some, some limits on it. So you have to be making less than the 250% of the federal poverty level threshold. I think that's fifty dollars or $60,000 for, for a family of four. And or you have to have be residing in a school district that's in the bottom 20% of performance. This legislation gets rid of all of that and says, no, it is universal, truly universal. No matter where you live, no matter what your income level is, you get to take these voucher amounts and send your child to the school that you choose. And the status of this bill is that it is in the Senate Education Committee. It's had a few hearings I don't know what the likelihood of it getting out of, of committee is. It's not to say that 
it doesn't have support. It's just that it's it's a fairly large spend, and I would suspect that something to that effect will find its way in the budget. It already is there in the budget to a smaller degree, but that's the governor's first push for this sort of thing. And the General Assembly is going to weigh its options with what it does. Will that also include parochial schools, home schools, charter schools? It is more inclusive. So for example, it does. there is sort of a universal ed choice scholarship in Cleveland that it gets rid of because again, if you're if you're making this universal, you don't need a carve out for Cleveland metropolitan school districts. With respect to homeschool students, there's actually a, a non-refundable tax credit in current law of two hundred and fifty dollars. The bill boosts it to two thousand dollars. So it is separate from that, but the bill does anticipate some relief for parents of homeschoolers. And that goes with each child in a family. Correct. The pandemic brought to light the need in many counties across the state that are lacking high-tech services, especially with education and medical needs. Bill, what role do you really think the state government should play in promoting the development of technology? So this is an easy one, and I'm, I'm a strong supporter of the government playing a role in promoting these sorts of things. I liken it to the federal highway system where you connected various parts of the country for our greater economic good. Give the listeners a, a little bit of an insight into the weird things that I read. I read about Wealth of Nations there, written by Adam Smith, and one of his contentions was wealth would be built for those areas that were most easily interconnected. And these rural areas, without having access to broadband, without being able to do telemedicine, they can't really uh, or fully participate in today's, I mean, let's be honest, very connected and very electronic world. So this brings them into more fully into the, the economy and allows them to be more connected to the world at large. I don't think a lot of people understand that out there in the rural areas, we talk broadband, but most people don't say, well, I don't know what broadband is. Well, it's just internet. And many of these people didn't have any access, did they? No, they did not. And from to give you a quick anecdote, I had never been to Hocking Hills. My wife would go there occasionally when she was a child, and um, that's in south, southeast Ohio, Beautiful, beautiful area, but when I was down there, I could not access the internet very easily. And I becomes very apparent very quickly when you're not able to connect just how much you feel what you're lacking. When you stop to think of it, when there weren't any schools open or a lot of medical places, I mean, people were supposed to use the internet. Well, How could they use the internet when there wasn't any services? And I agree, the governor's done a fantastic job of putting the monies there. Absolutely, although I would say the General Assembly (laughs) appropriates uh, that money, so we we should get some (laughs) credit for that as well. Yes. (laughs) Well, let's go to now the whole Norfolk Southern Railway issue. As a state senator, what action are you taking to address the concerns and challenges facing by not only people and businesses, but also the fact is we've had several, well, 
five or six accidents in Ohio in the past year. And yet we've got to have these dangerous chemicals moved from one place to another. And the other thing is Norfolk Southern Railway operates the rail line that is owned by the city of Cincinnati, but there's a board of directors and presently they're considered selling it from the city of Cincinnati to Norfolk Southern. What is your position on, uh, it's a very broad issue. <laughs> we'll, we'll take this uh, question in, in parts here. So uh, with respect to concerns and challenges of what happened in East Palestine, and actually uh, there were, were some other derailments throughout the state, I think four or five in total this year. So the Senate has, there is a, rail, a Senate Select Committee on Railway Safety that is currently meeting. We've had two hearings. We've had various state agencies come in from transportation to EPA to health to discuss what needs they have and what we can do to help. The issue is sort of complicated by the fact that uh, a lot of the oversight and regulation of the railroads is federal in nature. So uh, we're looking at what we can do and really what it what it's sort of centering around right now with respect to how many people you have on your crew, as well as this technology on the rails themselves that every 25 miles or so, it will check the temperature of the bearings and say, okay, this is overheating, you probably need to stop. Well, it was my understanding it had tripped three of these things, and the total time that it, from when it started heating up to when the derailment occurred was north of 40 minutes, and I think most people look at that and say, that's a little too much. You probably should have stopped earlier. How do we encourage Norfolk Southern and other railroads to be more circumspect with respect to safety? But I would anticipate that after those hearings are done, that will whatever we come up with will wind its way into the state transportation budget. With respect to the Norfolk Southern, or excuse me, Cincinnati Southern Railway sale, I've been an opponent of that since I last heard about it, maybe November or so, October, November of, of last year. Without going into the weeds on all of this, I do think that over time, if it is sold, that and it will go to the proceeds from any sale will go into this fund, and then the money is, it's kind of like an annuity. The money will go back to the city of Cincinnati. They feel that they will be able to make more money uh, having this fund than you know, having a lease on the rail. That said, I don't agree with that. I think that over time, they would have neither an asset in the railroad or a fund. But the bigger picture for me is also that you want to hold on to these public assets. I do think it is critical if you're looking at the future with respect to rail, you only have a handful of, of these larger railways. Well, once they, not only are they operating and maintaining it, but once they own it, they have an effective monopoly. And the more you hear about folks talking about doing passenger and, and so on and so forth, it's very difficult to be flexible when the railroads are not only operating and maintaining them, they also own the tracks. That, in my opinion, is a problem. But we'll see in all cases whether we do the enabling language at the state level. And for the people listening in, what that means is the city of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Southern Railway, in order to do this sale the way that they want to do it, they need a change in state law, which is currently in the state transportation budget. If that is to pass, the second leg of this is that it has to be approved by the voters in the city of Cincinnati. And I don't know if it's last, but 
uh, not least, but at some point, the uh, National Transportation Safety Board would also have to sign off on on this as well. So there's quite a bit, quite a few hurdles that need to be covered before this actually becomes law. There is another very important Senate Bill 39 that exempts baby products, and that includes such items as diapers and formula from sales and user tax. What's the status of this bill? This bill is in my committee, Senate Ways and Means Committee, and it's had three hearings, and I don't think anybody came out opposed to this. What I would say as far as the status, it's tricky with with how the committee works. So if this were to pass, the expenditure is about it, – it's going to cost 40 or $50 million a year from the state to exempt it from sales and use tax. What I'm getting at here is by having those hearings, it makes it more easy to say, all right, this belongs in the budget. And it actually is in the budget for what it's worth. But it makes it easier to maintain in the event that, let's suppose the House takes it out, the Senate has already had hearings on it, and we could put it back in, go on our merry way. But as a general rule for the Senate Ways and Means Committee, we try to avoid doing a lot of tax expenditures because the budget, it's a two-year budget. And when you do a lot of sales tax exemptions or income tax cuts outside of the context of the budget, it can kind of confuse things, and then you have to correct the budget at some point in the middle of the biennium, which we like to avoid. But I do suspect that this will probably pass in the budget this June. Another thing is, is a major concern for employers is the inability to find workers, particularly in retail and child care. What are your thoughts to remedy? So the bill I'm I'm working on with this is actually not a new idea. It surrounds or is is regarding the earned income tax credit. In Ohio, we already have one. It's a non-refundable tax credit up to 30% of what you get from the federal government. To give you an idea of how it works is you have to actually work to get this tax break, but it's for lower and middle income families. So let's suppose that you were getting $5,000 from the federal government you would have to have you would get a non-refundable credit at the state level for $1500 for example because ours is 30% of the federal earned income tax credit what this legislation would do is it would say we're going to keep that 30% non-refundable credit but we're also going to add a 9% refundable earned income tax credit or 12% if you happen to be family with children under 3 the whole idea with this is to boost to some degree the salary through the tax code of these lower income workers because, again, it's very difficult for these employers to find these folks. And I think this would be very helpful. And and it's actually an idea that has had bipartisan support. It was introduced at the federal level by a Democrat back in the 70s and signed into law by Republican President Ford. Uh, The difference is, is that I would make this revenue neutral to the state by putting some guardrails around the business income deduction and how that operates. Bill, this has been very interesting because these are major concerns for Ohioans, whether you're the baby, the child care, anything. But we're going to move away as we're coming to a close. And our listeners like to know about our elected officials on a more personal level. You talk bills and regulations and things. 
Describe your own family and whereabouts in the district you live and what makes a typical weekend look like for you. Glad you asked that. My So I have my wife, Heather, and I have uh, three children. We have Louie is the oldest. Uh, Jimmy is the middle uh, child. And our youngest is a five-month-old named Jonah. And we live in the southern part of Colerain Township there, a little census-designated community known as is Grosbeck and attend uh, St. Anne's Church. Typical weekend is is quite wild for us. Uh, I, I'm sure many parents listening to this probably feel the same. The whole goal is to wear the kids out as much as possible. We often take them to the uh, Cincinnati Museum Center or when the weather is better, uh, down to the zoo. From our standpoint, very enriching activities to do, but but at the same time, they're they're larger spaces where they get to <laughs> run around. And let's let's just say that mid afternoon after we've done that, it uh, uh, it helps them uh, nap well. But you know, in the evenings, we also we're, we're foodies. We like to go to the various restaurants around town. Mari's Tiny Cove there in in Shiviet is one that we we often hit up on Saturday evenings, as well as Ferrari's uh, very close to here and. And Madeira is another big one for us. And uh, the kids obviously love it. As parents, it's it's not easy to get out as much. But if there's a place that we can get out and the kids are happy and calm and not screaming, we're all about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know you have three boys. Because the oldest is how old is? Louis is six years old now. He'll be seven in July. <laughs> yeah, you do have your hands full. <laughs> okay, well, Bill, what advice would you give for any young person who's interested in pursuing a career in politics? And just talk about whether or not you're going to be a candidate this year and how people can contact you. Sure. So I'm I'm actually not going to be a candidate in 23. I will be in, in 24, although that would be my last Senate campaign due to uh, term limits. And I would tell listeners uh, the best way to contact me is by email, SD, so short for Senate District, uh, SD08 at OhioSenate.gov. That's all one word, Ohio Senate. Emails are best because then we get to reflect on what you've sent us as opposed to trying to interpret via a phone call where we might need to call back a few times. Young people getting involved with this, I, I, I would just say exactly that. Get involved, reach out to us. I think a lot of people don't realize, particularly if they, they go up to Columbus, you can walk right into my office, really, have a meeting with me and talk about what you interests you have. But but it's very important for young people to not just get involved, but voice their opinion. I think I've, I've seen this as a problem even with legislators. You need to speak up. And part of it is is an issue of fear, but also are my concerns going to resonate? And I will tell you, there are a lot of legislators that operate under, well, this is the way that we've done it for years. We're going to continue to do it this way, which might not quite overlap well with the needs of some of these younger generations. So if you don't speak up, the thought is, well, what's working right now is working for everybody. Honestly, just come meet with us, uh, volunteer for campaigns, even run for office as a younger person. I think uh, the youngest person to win a seat on the Ohio House of Representatives was 18 years old. That was out in, in Western Ohio. But there's in Hamilton County and in other counties, there are plenty of, of political subdivisions where 
if you just get your name on the ballot, you win because few people are are actually running for these seats. So be bold, take the steps to run and get involved and go for it. Thank you, Bill. Now, in closing, High Heels and Politics listeners, I know now have really a better understanding of the work of the state Senate and how legislation, what legislation is being considered, how it's going to impact Ohioans. And thank you for taking the time to participate in this High Heels and Politics podcast interview. Your insights and perspectives and contributions to discussion are important, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to have had this conversation with you. And thank you for our listeners. Thank you very uh, much, Marianne. Pleasure to do it. Anytime you want to have me back, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sharad Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.